Let's turn this morning to Philippians chapter 2, please. So Philippians chapter 2, and we'll read from the opening verse through to verse 8. So Philippians chapter 2. I'm a little bit uh, croaky this morning, and I know there's at least one minister, and he can preach while he's sucking a fisherman's brain, but I am not that fisherman, or that, that preacher. <laughs> I want to be a fisherman. Long to be a fisher of men, as the Lord would say, and has commanded us to follow him. But uh, we'll just pray that the Lord will draw near and, and help and give us the strength that we need. So Philippians chapter 1. It's not Reverend Greer, by the way. He's not that preacher. But Philippians chapter 2, sorry, in verse 1, reading through to verse 8. So let's hear the word of our God. If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies fulfill ye my joy, that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of men. Being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Amen. And we trust the Lord will bless his word to our hearts. Let's just bow before him in prayer and ask him to help even as we gather around his word and his truth. Father in heaven, we come before thee and once again we do rejoice in the solemn portion of scripture that we have read. It thrills our heart, it blesses our souls. We thank thee for our Savior and we rejoice in all that he has done for us. And we thank the Lord that he did it willingly, voluntarily, in great love. And we thank the Lord that thou didst send thy Son in love. And we thank the Lord that love was manifested. And there is no greater love than this, than that the man would lay down his life for his friends. And we thank the Lord for the one who laid down his life for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Lord, we come to thee, O Father, and I pray, Lord, for that fresh cleansing in the precious blood, the infilling of the Spirit, Lord, the one who knows our weakness, but has pleased thee to take the weak, to take those who are not, who feel of themselves totally inadequate and, Lord, just feeble and as worms in thy sight. And I pray that thou would take the vessel and fill me with thy Spirit. I take the promised Holy Ghost. I pray for that enabling. I look to thee to strengthen me for this, this task, this hour that lies before me. Fill me, O God, I pray. May the word be a blessing to thy dear people. May it penetrate through to the heart of the ungodly. May it convict them, may it smite them. Take away the veil that is upon their minds, O God. And we pray that the scales will fall from their eyes, that they may behold the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who died upon the tree. Lord, hear us and do us good. And shut us in with thyself and take away distracting thought. Elevate, O God, this mortal flesh and the attention span of all who is gathered. 
and settle us down in thy presence as we gather round thy words. Speak, O God, we pray, as thus and thus saith the Lord. For we ask this all in the Saviour's worthy and precious name. Amen. We turn this Lord's Day to this wonderful portion of Scripture concerning the condescension of the Son of God. We've already looked at verses 6 and 7 under the general heading, the descent of the Word. And it was my intention really to deal with verses 6, 7, and 8 in one sermon. But I'm glad that it's really been prolonged and we've been able to look at our Savior over an extended period of time. The three verses each divided up nicely into three headings. In verse 6, we thought about the heights from which He came. And that was our starting point in eternity and in the heavenlies. And only when we have the backdrop that backdrop will we ever begin to understand the real meaning of humility. Last week we gave attention to verse 7 and we noticed the descent, the depths to which he descended. And we took each of the clauses in that verse and we followed the downward steps of the Son of God into this world that he might redeem our souls. He made himself, as we read there in verse 7, of no reputation. And I must admit the alternative meaning of those words he took no account of. He took no account of himself have really stuck with me in the past week. It wasn't that he had a heedless disregard for his heavenly glory or his independent authority or the use of divine attributes or his personal riches, but he took no account of those things because he took account of you and he took account of of me. He saw you and I in the depths of our sin, and his love for us is so great that he made himself of no reputation. He took no account of all his glory, of all his heavenly riches, of all the use of his independent divine authority. The sovereign became a servant. He came in the form of a servant. And the role can be translated as, or the word can be translated, slave, as we mentioned last week. He became a servant, and he submitted himself to his father as the role, in the role of mediator, both declaring and demonstrating his servitude. Now, for this to happen, for him to be able to express himself as a servant of the Lord, he, he was made in the likeness of man. And here's the wonder of the incarnation. He, the Son of God, he united to his deity a true humanity with all the limitations of that humanity in which he felt and experienced all the effects of the fall, sin accepted. He entered into the sufferings and the miseries of this life in order that he might be a faithful and a merciful high priest and also be one who is able to succor us and help us in our time of need. And that brings us to verse 8 this morning. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And this morning we're going to look and consider this verse under the heading, The Lengths to Which He Went. Now once again, I don't have any points that begin with the same letter. I don't have suffixes or prefixes that rhyme with the same sound, but we're just going to take each of the clauses in verse 8 and use them as a separate point. So let's look in the first place at the words, and being found in fashion as a man. 
Now, you might think that this is simply a repetition of what we find there at the end of verse 7, and was made in the likeness of men. But there is a slight difference. The word likeness, we noticed last week, it states the fact that he took to himself a true human nature becoming the God-man. And I've already mentioned that he had all the, the limitations of a true humanity, and he was subject to the effects of the fall in that humanity. He was weary, he wept, he was thirsty, and all the rest of it, etc., etc. But the Greek word for fashion in verse 8, it refers purely to the outward. How he appeared to the senses to those around him, he was found by men to be a man. When man's attention was drawn to him, as he grew up there in Nazareth, as he walked through the land of Palestine, they found him to appear just like any other man. Read in Isaiah 53 in the verse 2, For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of the dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. And what that means is this, there was nothing extraordinary about the appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ and His humanity. He appeared just like any other Jewish man of His day. He who was in the form of God appeared to the eyes of men simply to be a man. Now I did point out when speaking about the Greek word translated form, we must not think that it suggests Something can be shaped or molded, that something can change. That's not what the word means. It means the intrinsic nature of something in the Greek language. But this Greek word for fashion, it refers to the outward, which does change from time to time and from circumstance to circumstance. For instance, you take a little, a little baby, and the nature they have is a human nature. This they possess, and it can never change. They cannot sometime in the future possess an animal nature. No matter what they self-identify as, they will always have the form, the intrinsic nature of a true humanity, body and soul. However, the fashion, the outward appearance of that little child does change. The little babe becomes a toddler, becomes a boy, becomes a youth, becomes a man, and then becomes a senior. Now, while the divine nature of Jesus Christ never changed, the outward appearance of His humanity did. He grew up to become a man. The statement being found in fashion as a man views Him from the vantage point of the people who saw Him. You know, they didn't have the feeling that there was one. There was one who was condescending to them. They didn't get the idea that there was one who was reluctant when he stooped down. They didn't get the impression that this man did not understand them. No, he was found in fashion as a man. He so perfectly condescended. He totally identified himself with men, completely gave himself to them and their needs because he was a man. And yet the tragedy is, that is how many of him just thought of him. That's how many just viewed the Lord Jesus Christ. 
even after all his works and after all his words and after all the miracles that he performed, they still referred to him as this man. Their minds were darkened by sin, that is true, but there was nothing in the outward appearance of Christ that suggested that he was anything other than a man. And what an example of humility that is. One commentator said this, it was one thing for God to become man. That's humbling enough. But for God to become man and men to think that he is only man is indeed a humbling thing. And I want to ask you this morning, is he just a man to you, sinner? Is that all he is? Just another person from history? Just an individual that you can take or leave, that you don't give heed to his words or to his commands? Is he your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, or is he just a man? People today, because of the pride of life, they want to appear what they are not. They seek to present a version of themselves which is simply not true, whether that be by their Instagram posts or by the filter on their camera on their phone or by putting themselves into debt. People want to appear today what they are not. Christ, who was made in the likeness of men, was found in fashion as a man, though he was so much more than that. But he took the humble place. Now, I've always mentioned this. There is a practical reason why Paul writes these things concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. It was so that believers there would have the mind of Christ, that they would be humble, which is key to unity. You know, and if as believers we have been by God's grace conformed to the likeness of Jesus Christ, then we must be found by men to be Christ-like in our outward appearance. And all of that includes our conversation, our conduct, and our clothes. If that's who and what we are, if we've been made conformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ by the grace of God, then to men, that's how we ought to appear, Christ-like, in every part and every aspect of our being. You know, let us, let us seek to portray to others and to those around us that's, that's who we are. We are the Lord's. We are Christ. Let's not seek to portray something that we are not. We are not to be conformed to the world, but you and I are to be transformed by the renewing of our mind more and more into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to appear what we are. May others see that spirit of humility in us and upon us. And you know when that happens and when no one gives and is giving that appearance of self-importance which none of us really have, will end unity as a result. And being found in fashion as a man. The second clause and the second point this morning We read there in verse 8, He humbled Himself. He humbled Himself. What a statement that is. We have been thinking about the Son of God's descent. And while we have been doing that, this phrase does not stand at the head of the section, but towards the end. We have already seen a number of His steps downwards, and yet there is still lower for Him to go. For we read here that He humbled Himself. Now, in the Bible, we have the account of a man called Nebuchadnezzar. 
He ruled over that vast Babylonian empire and was the most powerful and longest-serving and reigning monarch of that great kingdom. His decrees were binding upon his subjects. His possessions, they could not be numbered. His servants, they did his bidding. And his armies, they both defended and extended his kingdom. He was a great man. But God drove him out from among men into the field, there to dwell with the beasts there, and he ate grass like an ox. His hair grew long like the eagle's feathers, and his nails grew long like the talons and the claws of birds, as we read in Daniel 9, from the most powerful man on earth to a madman out eating grass in the field. What humiliation, and yet that is nothing, absolutely nothing in comparison to Christ's. Christ, he ruled over the whole universe from eternity past. And while Nebuchadnezzar for a time appeared, and he had the appearance of a beast, the Son of God was made in the likeness of men to appear forever as the God-man. Nebuchadnezzar was humbled for his sin. But Christ, he had no sin. Nebuchadnezzar was humbled against his will, but Christ willingly underwent humiliation. Nebuchadnezzar was humbled by another, namely God, but Christ, who is God, he humbled himself. That's the point that Paul makes here. This was a real abasement. The Lord didn't just give the impersonation that he was a humble man. He was not humbled as a man, but he humbled himself. He was not forced to take the humble place, but he voluntarily took it to himself. Now, because this statement comes in here, he humbled himself. It comes in at this point, after the Son of God took upon himself the form of a servant, after he was made in the likeness of men, after he was found in fashion as a man. How did the Son of God humble himself as a man? How did he do that? He's already humbled himself, as we have read here, who being in the form of God. But how, as a man, did Christ humble himself? Let me give you some instances of how he, as a true man, humbled himself. He humbled himself in that he was born as a little babe instead of appearing as a man. He humbled himself by being born into obscurity and poverty and to a lowly maiden. He humbled himself by submitting to the right of circumcision according to the laws we read in Luke chapter 2 and verse 21. You might ask yourself, well, how is that humbling? How did he humble himself in his circumcision? Well, circumcision was a symbolic. It was a symbolic rite that marked the necessity of the inward work of regeneration and assumes that human hearts, they're naturally rebellious and in need of correction. It was the inward work and not the outward right that the Hebrews, the Jews, were to focus on. We read in Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 16, The Lord commanded them, Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your hearts, and be no more stiff-necked. Same words, we read something similar. Jeremiah chapter 4 and verse 4. Christ Jesus, the pure, undefiled Son of God, as the God-man took to Himself the mark. The mark which symbolized the need of man to be made right with God by an inward work of God's grace. 
And yet he had no need of that, for he is the sinless Son of God. He humbled himself in his circumcision by identifying with those whom he came to save. Do you understand that? When he was there in the temple and that rite was carried out, that outward sign was a mark of the necessity of an inward work of grace, and yet he, the Son of God, had no need of that. But he humbled himself, identifying with sinners like you and me who needed that inward work of grace within us. It was also necessary for him to undergo circumcision since he was going to put an end to the ceremonial law. And even though he was a lawmaker as the babe Christ Jesus, he yielded himself to the duty of that law and therefore he bound himself to the obedience and the fulfilling of the whole law. He humbled himself by submitting to the obedience of a child in a household. In learning and practicing a trade as a carpenter, he who framed the heavens. He humbled himself in his long wait of inconspicuousness before he launched himself out into his public ministry. He humbled himself in his baptism. See, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance, yet he needed no repentance, but he once again did it to identify with sinners whom he came to save. And he also said to John that he needed to do it to fulfill all righteousness. See, one thing that we all need is repentance. But repentance is a gracious act of obedience that we're not capable of on our own. We must be granted repentance by God's grace. We read of that, Acts chapter 11 and verse 18, it tells us, when they heard these things, they held their peace and glorified God, saying, Then hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. And since it is God who grants repentance, then, then it's a positive righteousness, a gift of grace, which has been secured for us by Christ's repentance and purchased for us by the shedding of His blood. And what does this mean? Well, what do you suppose? What do you suppose that those gathered round the river Jordan that day would have been thinking as Jesus Christ was baptized? The scribes, the Pharisees, the many people, what would they have thought as Christ was being baptized? Remember, it was a baptism of repentance. They would have been thinking the man Jesus of Nazareth must have needed to repent. That's how he humbled himself. There's his great identification with Sinners, he who is light in whom there is no darkness at all. He was willing for men to think that of him, that he needed to repent. He humbled himself in his temptations. He allowed Satan to tempt him in his humanity. He allowed Satan to even use his own word against him. And that's a marvel that time does not even allow us to expand on. He humbled himself as a man tempted in his humanity by Satan. He humbled himself and his companions whom he chose to dwell with. He who dwelt with the Father and the Spirit and was worshipped by adoring angels. He kept company with fishermen, a tax collector, and he kept company with one whom he knew would deny him. 
He humbled Himself. In His triumphant entry into Jerusalem, He deserved so much more, and yet He came lowly and riding upon an ass, and upon the colt the foal of an ass, He humbled Himself in Gethsemane. There is a true man pleading with God. Joseph Hart, who wrote the hymn, Come Ye Sinners, he wrote concerning this in another hymn. Great High Priest, we view the stooping with our names upon thy breast. In the garden groaning, dripping to the ground with sorrow pressed, weeping angels stood confounded to behold their Maker thus. And can we remain unwounded when we know it was for us he humbled himself at his trial, where Caiaphas doubted his word, where Caiaphas thought he was an imposter and thought he was a liar, and Caiaphas bound him by an oath. He made him swear by the living God, in which no one was allowed to lie. He made him swear, Christ who is God. He made him swear as a man to tell them if he was the Christ. And he humbled himself as a man, and in doing so, he took that oath. He who is truth and cannot lie. Well, probably the greatest length to which Christ went in humbling himself is when he who knew no sin became sin for us. When purity, absolute purity, Yes, in His divine nature, but also in His humanity, for He is the sinless one. When He was imputed with our sin, Thomas Watson said, Christ, who would not endure sin in the angels, endured sin imputed to Himself. Those are just some of the examples of the lengths to which the Son went as the God-man as he humbled himself. Spurgeon made this comment, Blessed be his name. He stoops and stoops and stoops. And when he reaches our level and becomes man, he still stoops and stoops and stoops lower and deeper yet. What lengths, child of God? That's the lengths he went to for us. What lengths are we willing to go to for him? We're exhorted twice in the New Testament, once by James, once by Peter, humble yourselves in the sight of God and under His mighty hand. Humble. In the English, it's derived from the Latin word humilis, which means low. And that comes from the other Latin word humus, which means earth. And surely, surely, contemplation of these things ought to put us into the dust of the earth. That's how we humble ourselves, by taking consideration of He who humbled Himself. The Greeks, they saw humility as shameful, but the New Testament sees humility as a gracious virtue. Then the fundamental difference between the Greeks and the biblical use of the world is that word, is that in the Greek worldview, it was man-centered. And lowliness was looked upon as something that was shameful, something to be avoided, something to be overcome. But with the New Testament's God-centered worldview, humility is to be embraced. He must increase. I must decrease. He humbled Himself. 
That's how he did it. The third clause in verse 8, in our third point this morning, and became obedient unto death. To be obedient, it describes an attitude and willingness to be submissive to the will of another and to comply with the demands or requests of one in authority. Christ's life was one of obedience. From the cradle to the cross, obedience to God, obedience to men, obedience to Mary and Joseph, obedience to magistrates. He was obedient to the ceremonial law. He was obedient to the moral law. All the precepts offered and the penalty offered. The last Adam's obedience was necessary because of the first Adam's disobedience. Adam's disobedience in the Garden of Eden had plunged. It plunged mankind into a state of sin, guilty and condemned. However, Christ's unfeeling obedience had secured for His people a righteousness by which they are accepted in God's sight and as a result possess eternal life. Romans chapter 5, if you turn back there, in the verses 15 to 19, they are the key passage concerning this. Romans 5, and we'll just read verse 19. It says, For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, there's Adam. So by the obedience of one, that's Christ, shall many be made righteous. Deuteronomy chapter 6. If you go to Deuteronomy chapter 6 and the verses 24 and 25, read there of what Moses said to the children of Israel. Deuteronomy 6 and the verses 24, 25. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes to fear the Lord our God for our good always. That he might preserve us alive as it is at this day. And it shall be, listen, our righteousness if we observe to do all these commandments before the Lord our God as He hath commanded us. Full, active, personal, and complete obedience to everything that is written in the law of God is what God requires of man in order that they might have a standing before Him, in order that they might be righteous in His sight. And I ask you this morning, have you rendered perfect personal obedience to God's law? Well, the answer is, if you're going to be honest with yourself, is no. Of course you haven't. And I haven't. And Israel didn't even do that. In Ezekiel 20, verse 13, God charged them concerning breaking His commands. He says, But the house of Israel rebelled against me. In the wilderness they walk not in my statutes and despise my judgments, which if a man do, he shall even live in them. But they had no standing, no standing in their own efforts, their own endeavors, their own obedience, because they failed to keep and do all that God commanded him of them. Sinners are disobedient. But the Savior, He is the obedient servant. Whose prophetic words we read in Isaiah chapter 50 in the verse 5. The Lord hath opened mine ear, and I was not rebellious, neither turned away back. As you know, the picture is there of the servant who had his ear bored through with an awl as a sign that he was willing to serve and obey his master. God commanded, thou shalt, and Christ did. 
God commanded, thou shalt not, and Christ did not. He had come to do God's will, and he delighted in doing it. He always did those things which pleased the Father, and he had this commendation from heaven, something that you and I don't have. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. What does God say of us? Mankind, they are all gone out of the way. They have become filthy. There is none righteous. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. That's God's assessment of us. But of His Son, the obedient servant, this is my well-beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Read in Hebrews chapter 5 and the verses 8 and 9. We read there, Though He were a Son, yet He learned obedience by the things which He suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. What Christ knew by omniscience, he learned by experience. Though he were a son, yet he learned obedience. And true obedience that can only be tested by the fires of suffering. And he suffered his whole life, and yet he was found to be obedient. Verse 9 in Hebrews 5, it tells us that he was made perfect. And that means that he fulfilled all righteousness as the God-man. Therefore, in the light of that, he became the author of salvation. And to those that trust in him, his righteousness is imputed and are justified in the sight of God. He went to great lengths of fulfilling every jot and tittle of God's law in order that sinners might be saved. What's the practical point? Not a theological discussion that Paul's entered into here. What's the practical point of the one who became obedient unto death? Well, Paul was pointing out and emphasizing that the humble Christian will be the obedient Christian. Let this mind be in you. Let this obedience of Christ and how he fulfilled it all, let it be in you and me. We're not to be as Christians picking and choosing what we are to obey or what we don't want to obey. But we're to render full obedience unto our God with, with gladness. The children's chorus puts it like this. Obedience is the very best way to show that you believe doing exactly what the Lord commands and doing it joyfully, doing it immediately. And that's what we ought to do. He became obedient unto death. But fourthly and finally, even the death of the cross. Even the death of the cross. Theologians, they usually speak of two aspects of Christ's obedience. His act of obedience, which they identify as his keeping the precept of the law in his life, and also then his passive obedience, which they say was his paying of the penalty of the law and his death. He went to the cross, the worst form of torture death, originally devised by the Persians and perfected by the Romans. This is the bottom. This is the very bottom. One man put it like this. The bottom rung in the ladder from the throne of God as the death of the cross. The Son of God came all the way down to the most despised death of all, a condemned criminal on a cursed cross. It wasn't just death. It was the death of the cross, an excruciating, humiliating, 
painful, embarrassing, cruel death, only fit for the worst of criminals. Yet he was numbered with the transgressors. He was in the midst, the place reserved for the worst. There was no honor in his death. None whatsoever. The Jews, they absolutely despised it. They hated it. They remembered the words of Deuteronomy 23, 21, which said, the one who was hanged upon the tree was accursed. It was the ultimate in human degradation to become a spectacle of woe and an object of derision. This is the lengths to which the Son of God went for you and me. And who can measure the span between the heights of glory and the cross of shame? It is immeasurable, just is as a distance that He removes our transgressions from us. He went all the way. He never cried out at any point, stop, that's enough. I've laid aside my glory. I've become a servant. I have taken to myself a true human nature. I have humbled myself. I have obeyed the law, stop, that's enough. No, he left the splendors of heaven. Knowing his destiny, it was the hill the lonely hill of Golgotha where he laid down his life for me. He went all the way to the tree. You know, it's easy for an individual to render obedience to another when there's no risk involved. But the case is different when obedience is attended with danger. And Christ was obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. You know, the persecuted church, they know something of this type of obedience for often theirs is unto death. And yet so many Christians in Western society, they find it so hard, so hard in obeying the basic commands of God and Scripture, like attendance at the Lord's table, like baptism, like tithing, that being among the public worship where no one is threatening our lives, we find it so hard to be obedient to our God. And yet here was our Christ, our Savior, our Redeemer, and He obeyed when there was great danger, when it led to death. The persecuted church knows something of this obedience. Oh, may we be obedient. In the manner in which Christ was, His death is the greatest instance of unselfish self-sacrifice, and it's the loftiest example of looking on the things of others. Christ, He went a little further for us. He went to the death of the cross. Therefore, you and I, we should go a little further for Him. We should take up our cross daily. We should die to self, and we should follow Him in serving others. That's the thrust. That's the theme of Paul's teaching here. This is the humility that he wants these believers at Philippi to possess because he knows this will foster unity. His joy will be filled. The blessing of God will be poured out upon them, and God will do a mighty work through them that not even the great machinery of Rome would be able to stop. As I conclude this morning, think, of, think on him, believer. 
who came from great heights and descended to great depths and went to great lengths to redeem us. Christian, when I thought about this, did you ever think how low, how low you and I must have been? Did you ever think that? If this is how low he came to reach out his hand to us and pluck us from the fearful pit and from the miry clay, how low were we? Blessed be his name. The heights from which he came. The depths to which he descended. The lengths to which he went. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. May the Lord bless his word to our hearts for his own name's sake. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we bow before thee, O God, and we confess that we are unworthy. We say, what is man that thou art mindful of him? That the Son of Man should visit us. God, we come before thee and we confess that, Lord, that we need pride and any self-importance taken from us. We thank thee, O Father, for the one who, who took no account of himself because he took account of me. Lord, I pray for thy dear people. Thank you for them. We pray that you'll bless them, O God, and that, Lord, that you would use the word and apply it by thy Spirit. Give us grace. Give us the spirit of obedience to do what thou hast commanded. Lord, we pray that thou would even speak to those in this gathering who are still in the pride of their sin. I'm willing to submit, I'm willing to bow the knee. We pray that thou would have mercy upon them. O God, take the word and use it for the glory of thy name. We thank thee for the one who came so low to lift up us who are so little. We thank thee that thou hast made us kings and priests unto our God. We bless his name. We pray that he will receive all the honor and glory that is due to him. We pray, Lord, that thou would bring us again to your house in thy will this evening. Lord, that thy presence will fill the sanctuary, that the Holy Ghost will come and take a dealing with the hearts of those who are not saved. And as we part and go our separate ways now, may the grace of the Lord Jesus and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be our portion both now and forever. For we ask this all in Christ's precious and worthy name. Amen.